Hi, uh, my name is Darren, and it's nice to see you all here. If you're a guest with us or you're visiting, uh, we're really thankful that you've decided to join us. And we hope that you won't think of yourself as a guest for very long, but uh, that you'll think of yourself as family. And if you're family around here, we're really excited to see you as well. We're sort of beginning our Christmas series, so I want to take a few minutes and set that up. We, if you've been here over time, you know we're in the midst of a longer study in Genesis. We're not done with that. We've only gone through the first 21 chapters. We're going to pick that back up in January, but we are going to press pause on our Christmas series uh, for a couple of weeks, or excuse me, we're going to press pause on the Genesis series for a short Christmas series, which I'll unfold here in just a second. And then uh, when we get to January, we'll jump back into Genesis. So uh, I don't think I mentioned it in this service, although I mentioned it last week, but we're, our Christmas series this year has kind of an interesting title. And I don't want to wig you out and I don't want you to be stressed, but uh, the title for our Christmas series this year is Christ Revealed in Xmas. Christ revealed in Xmas. And even as I say that, there might be some of you kind of, you get a little churny because you see that word Xmas and you start to feel like that is a bad thing, right? That's a bad, like they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas and that Xmas thing is a thing we got to fight against. And in some ways that sort of illustrates the point of the series that I'd like us to lean into over the next couple of weeks. There is a thing, an interesting thing that happens. And I will say, having been here at Fullerton Free for, uh, you know, four and a half years, I don't see this a lot actually in our family here at Fullerton Free, but I think more broadly, Oddly, there's a thing that can happen sometimes with Christians where we come into the celebration of Christmas or the Christmas season or whatever, and we almost come in with like a defensiveness, right? We come in with like a little bit of fear and like a, uh, I'll give you an illustration. I remember when my sons, my older sons were really little, uh, at Christmas time, we had like a stack of Christmas books, all kinds of Christmas books, things we'd bought, things other people had given us, whatever. And every night, you know, we'd go in and we'd sit on the edge of the bed. We'd sit down with the kids and we'd read them a Christmas story, like all through December, we'd read a Christmas story. And I can remember one particular night where um, I came into the boys' room and I was like, hey, you know, let's re- we're going to read a story. And so we grabbed a book and I sit down and in the book I happened to grab, I and mean, we had all kinds of books, but the book I happened to grab was like a nativity story, something about the baby Jesus or shepherd or wise men, or I don't remember, but immediately my boys were like, oh no, not another Jesus book, right? And, and I will tell you, like, as a pastor, that wasn't my finest moment, you know? Like, I didn't feel super proud of the way we've raised our kids, that they were kind of like repulsed by the, they wanted a book about a snowman, or they wanted a book about a Santa, or they wanted a book about something that felt a little less Jesus-y. And I didn't feel super proud of that. I realized I had a little bit of work to do. Maybe you've been in that. I'm sure your kids love the Jesus books, but my kid uh, at the time, not so much. And I just remember thinking like, oh, this is indicative of, you know, the, the broader culture that's trying to take Jesus out of Christmas. That even happened to my three-year-old here, you know, whatever. I think that sometimes, and it's a drag, but sometimes for those of us in the family of God, we come into the holiday season with us, we kind of got our dukes up a little bit, right? And maybe it's the commercialism. Maybe you feel appalled by the commercialism and all of the advertising and the fact that the Christmas stuff goes out earlier. Maybe you feel you know, frustrated because you read a couple articles about the fact that the Christmas tree is actually rooted in some sort of ancient pagan worship. Or maybe you're really strung up about the idea that Satan and Santa have the same letters in their name and that's really got you on edge. Or you, I mean, there's all kinds of things and you're laughing, but you've heard some of this stuff, right? And what ends up happening is that in a season that for the entire world, in some ways is kind of defined by 
hope and joy and peace and love and faith. It's the people of God sometimes that come into the conversations in our workplaces and in our schools, in our neighborhoods with a sense of like, hey, we got to protect Christmas so Jesus doesn't get stepped on. And what I'd like to suggest is that what we see actually happening in the created order and what we see happening in the lives of our neighbors, whether they know Jesus or not, is actually a part of God's design. If you and I were to go to, uh, if you and I were to go to the Brea Mall this afternoon, or we went down to downtown Disney, or any place where people congregate, and we were just to sort of poll people at random—church people, non-church people, Christians, people who have no use for faith, whatever—if we were just to poll humans broadly, there are some broad trends that people sort of. And, and this this polling has been done; the data exists. But if you were to ask people, like, "What do you love about Christmas? What do you love about the Christmas season?" Most people, no matter what their faith tradition, no matter what they believe, will go. Well, I really just love it when my family all gets together. And I really love like picking out the perfect gift for my wife or the perfect gift for my kids. Or I love that opportunity to just be generous to other people. If you were to talk to people, they'll say they love family. They love like the giving and receiving of gifts. People will talk about nostalgia. They'll go, oh man, when I hear these songs or when I smell the tree or when the smell of cookies baking or hot apple cider or whatever, that it just brings up all these wonderful memories. Well, what I'd like to declare over the next three weeks and what I want us to think about as a church family is that all of those things that everybody appreciates about the holidays are actually revelatory of God's character. They're all a byproduct of God's design. When we talk about family, we're going to get into that more this morning. We talk about family. Family is part of the way that God reveals himself. It's part of God's long-term purpose for mankind. We talk about generosity and the giving of good gifts. Man, that points directly to the character and nature of God in the giving of Christ. What we're celebrating in the incarnation. We talk about remembrance or nostalgia and being able to think back on on these wonderful moments in our life. That's the thing that God hardwired us for. And so there becomes this opportunity for us when we start to think, and and we're going to, I'll give you a sort of a theological phrase here, but there's the idea of, of a thing called common grace. Common grace. Let me give you a definition of that. There's a, a, an old writer named John Murray who defines it this way. Common grace is every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Now, interestingly, I had already planned this Christmas series, and then I went and I had breakfast last week with uh, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, who's a Biola and Talbot prof. He attends our church. He actually just, he gave me a copy of his new book, and I was really surprised because his new book is all about common grace. So this isn't a plug, but I read this this week, and if you're interested in the concept of common grace, he's done a great job of kind of unpacking that in this book. But the idea here is that God... God is good even to people who don't know him. God is good and kind and generous even to people who don't love him or don't believe in him or think the Bible is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. God is a God that extends grace to people whether they love him or not. In fact, we see that all throughout the Bible. In in Acts chapter 14, uh, verses 15 and following, it says, Men, why are you doing these things? Why also are men of like nature with you, and, uh, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from those vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven 
and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, right? So, so the writer here is saying to people in declaration, like, even though you might not know God, God has been good to you by providing sunshine and rain and seasons of harvest and goodness and kindness. He is a generous God who has not left himself without witness. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus is saying the same thing. There is a common grace that God gives good gifts to all people, whether they deserve it or not. And what Jesus is actually saying, he's going one step further to say, you should be kind to your enemies. You should do good to those who hate you because when you do that, you actually look like God who is good to people who don't believe in him, right? It's the idea of God's generosity, of God's kindness, this common grace. Psalm chapter 145 verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. He's good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Even in our study in the book of Genesis, we saw just a few weeks ago, God comes to Abimelech, right? The wicked king Abimelech, the pagan king Abimelech, God comes to him and knocks on, basically comes to him in a dream and says, hey, that woman, Sarah, that you just brought into your harem, like that's another man's wife and you need to get rid of her and you need to send her back to her husband or it's not going to go well for you. Well, why does God do that? God comes to Abimelech and intervenes, not because Abimelech asked for help, not because Abimelech acknowledged his need for God's intervention, Why does God help Abimelech? It's because our God is a God of common grace. He helps people even when they don't themselves recognize they need his kindness and generosity. And if we can bring down our dukes, if we can stop being so defensive, you see that defensiveness that sometimes the family of God brings into the holidays, that sense of needing to protect something something from those who are trying to take it. When we do that, we isolate ourselves from our neighbors. We remove ourselves from our neighbors. There's a sense of condescension and arrogance that comes with that. When we can take down our dukes and recognize that nobody can take Christ out of Christmas because he is at the core of it, then we have the opportunity to lift up our eyes and see that everybody we know loves the sense of having family around the table. Everybody we know loves the idea of giving and receiving good gifts. Everybody we know has a sense of nostalgia and God gave that to them to draw them to himself and to reveal something of who he is. In fact, it says in Romans chapter two, verse four, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's common grace His generosity, his wiring us to love family and community, his wiring us to love generosity. That's a way in which he's drawing us and everyone we know to himself. This morning, specifically, I want to talk about family. And I know that that for some of you, when I talk about family and that all of us are hardwired to love family, I also want to acknowledge that there are probably many of you in the room for which family, the idea of family, even may be problematic. You may have broken relationships. You may have been abused by family. You may, uh, you, you may have a relationship that is not one you look forward to spending with family. Uh, we want to acknowledge that and say we're with you in it. But we also want to say that even if your blood relationships, even if your genetic family is problematic, all of us are wired for community. All of us are wired to know and be known by other people. And that, and that is God's grace. That's God's generosity. That's his design. So I want to talk this morning about family. And in order to do that, I want to invite up my friend, John Fisher. John, will you come up and join me? 
Uh, John has been attending our church for a little while. Some of you may have met him before, but he usually sits kind of right over here on the aisle. We talk almost every Sunday, I think we're talking about something, but over the last year and a half or so, many times, uh, John, as I'm talking with him, will go, hey, Darren, I can't wait for the time when I get to tell people about Jesus in our church. You know, I want to teach, I want to preach. And so we've kind of been talking about it and we're just trying to find the right, the right week to do kind of a team up, right? Exactly. So uh, we felt like this week, talking about family, talking about Christmas a little bit, was a good chance for us to get connected. So not everybody in here knows you, John. Um, Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about you. So I love God because I work at Orange County Rescue Mission. I'm I'm in the back kitchen. I'm prepping the food, helping the food, and I serve it to people of the food for lunch. So that's your job. You work at the yes. Orange County Rescue Mission. Yes, I do. You've been coming, how long have you been a part of our family here at Fullerton for? You've been here for a little while. Yeah, yeah since 2012. Since 2012. And uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your family. So my family, I have 14 nieces and nephews. 14? 14, so I'm the uncle. So my brother's in Pennsylvania, Arizona, and California. And they're all coming this month. Ooh, that's cool. So the whole family's going to be here. Yeah, the whole can family. You, I, I don't think I could even remember 14 nieces and nephews. Can what? you remember all their names? Yeah, I can. Yeah, all right. That shows you got, you got it rocked out. Now, you mentioned your nieces and nephews yes. and your siblings, but you didn't tell us about your parents. Uh, your parents, Gary and Ellie, are sitting right over there, yeah? What? And, and they're also kind of awesome. They are. So we don't want to skip them. Okay. So, okay, so this, uh, we, one of the other things that's cool about us teaming up today for the teaching is that tonight is our special needs Christmas program. That's at six o'clock and you're, you're in that, correct? Yes, I am. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the Christmas program. So tonight at six o'clock in the worship center tonight is the Hawaiian Christmas and it's about a character named Kevin who is slumpy because he wants to be in Hawaii because he's in Hawaii helping his uncle Bill. In, in, in that program, but Kevin wanted to be in Minnesota, not Hawaii, because he felt grumpy because he wants Santa Claus, he wants hot chocolate, he wants sweating, and he wants some snowmen to build. Right, so you're playing Kevin who's grumpy, so right. that's going to take some acting for you, because you're not exactly. really a grump. We're going to see no. some true theater tonight. Uh, as you play yeah, a grumpy guy. It, yeah. and, and just so I get this straight, Kevin is, the character you play is grumpy because he's in Hawaii for Christmas, right. but he wishes he was in Minnesota. So right. we know this is fiction, right? We know it's, yeah, that's why, yeah. it's not real. Nobody wants that. Yeah. Nobody wants it. Yeah. But mostly it's because he wants hot cocoa and he wants to sled and he wants all that wintry stuff and he doesn't have it in Hawaii. That exactly. sounds like, and that's tonight at six. Yeah. Yeah. Tonight's at six o'clock. Tonight, tonight at six. So make sure you come back for, for the program tonight. Well, tell me this, uh, John. What what are your favorite things about Christmas? So my favorite things I like about Christmas time is listening to Christmas music, like Christmas carols, to know about God better, and I also like Christmas movies. What what's your favorite? The, the Grinch shows Christmas. One well, Netflix is Live Action it's by Jim Carrey. It's it's one of the best. Okay, films. so just to be clear, if you're choosing a Grinch movie this year. Do not go for the animated one. Go for the Jim Carrey one. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay, good. Just making sure I got this right. Now, we've talked before in our preparation for this morning. And wh- why don't you share with the church family one of your favorite Christmas traditions? So, the new tradition is to be on the screen of me and my dad on a tandem bike ride. We got a bike used in Minnesota. No, and because my dad is Rudolph Riddle's reindeer and I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> That's perfect. So we'll have to keep our eyes peeled for you guys cruising around the neighborhood, yeah? Right, definitely. And <laughs> I have a Santa bag, too. It's perfect. 
And I, we kind of joked about this before, but when you're, when Rudolph starts to go too slow, do you give him a little whip crack? What do you? Definitely. Seems like something you want to take advantage of for sure. So, so John, in all seriousness, why, why would you say to our family that Christmas is so important? Because it's important that to believe that Jesus is our savior, our hope, our Christ, who's born to us on this earth because he started as a baby. And remember, he's our Emmanuel. Emmanuel is an important verse in the Bible translation. It means God with us. Yeah. Yeah. The most important thing about Christmas, in spite of all these other things, is that it's God coming to be with us. God, Emmanuel. Right. I really like that emphasis. Yes. And I, we share that, uh, that appreciation for what's precious about Christmas. Now, in that sort of spirit and in your commitment and understanding of what's valuable about Christmas, you also just wrote a book, yeah? Yes, I did. I wrote it for my nephew, Dylan. Okay. He's my brother's son, and I made this book for him. It will be on the screen as well. Oh, yeah. So we got pictures. We John, got a picture John wrote and illustrated a Christmas book for his nephew. Now, your nephew's turning one, one. This, this month, right? My 19th. So he's just a little guy. And you made him this book, and it's called The True Meaning of Christmas. I got, my, yes. I got my own personal copy here. But John did all of these. And uh, John, tell me a little bit about why you felt like it was important to make this book for your nephew. Because it's important to remember, uh, I made this book for, for my nephews because um, I want them to remember their own Christmas story, their first Christmas story, to yeah. under age three and under. Yeah, from the very beginning, you want your nephew to understand what's most important about Christmas. I, I right. can tell you that he is going to love this, and that's something he's going to cherish. I was yes. very impressed and very moved by the creation of the book and the work you did on it. And, and I, I mean, I think it's a great illustration to us of some of what's vital in the Christmas story. So I, here's what I want to do this morning. I'd love to just be able to pray for you. I know you got a big yeah. role in the thing tonight. You're probably a little nervous about that. No, I'm not nervous at all. Not at all? <laughs> not at all. All right, rock I'm star. Too All right, rock star. Well, in that case, I, maybe I won't pray for you then. So we'll just. No, no I'm just. Please, I'm, do, please, do, please, I'm do. Kidding you. I'm totally kidding. I I consider it a privilege to have you have partnered with me both in the preparation and the delivery of this message today. Uh, it was lovely in the first service. It's been lovely in this service too. And I just want to. I'm thankful to be part of God's family with you, my friend. So let me pray for you. Will you join me in praying for John? God. We're thankful for the family of God that you have created in this place and the passions and the talents and the gifting that you put in each and every one of us. We want to pray right now for this uh, Christmas program tonight, that you would use it to draw people to yourself, that you would use it in all of the cast and the singers and the backstage people and the directors and the writers, that you would use that effort uh, to reveal exactly what John's been saying, the reality of what's most important about Christmas, that you came, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. I thank you for my brother, John. I'm thankful for his passion for you, his excitement about telling people about you. I'm thankful for his persistence over the last year or so and reminding me about how desirous he was of doing the thing we're doing right now together. I pray your blessing upon him, on his 14 nieces and nephews, on his family. I'm so thankful for his parents. And I pray that you would continue to use his writing and illustration of books like these to bless other people and that you would show yourself uh, gracious and powerful and strong in the places where his work and uh, his passion continues even beyond himself. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, bro. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So, 
So as you can see, even as we are sort of preparing for this and as we're talking about it, family is a big deal. And it's not just a big deal to you and me. It's a big deal to all of us. And it is a place in which we can see directly that God has revealed himself. And we know that because we see family as a theme in the scripture, literally from the beginning to the end. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see an emphasis on family. I just kind of want to hit some of the highlights of that for you, just so you see this pattern so that you can kind of see some of this folded in here. Some of it we saw not too long ago when we were studying Genesis at the very beginning in the creation of men. Remember uh, in Genesis chapter two, verses 18 and following, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From the very Genesis, from the very origin of God's story that he's telling with mankind, family is woven in there. From the very beginning, God is saying, it's not good that you're alone. You're not meant to live in isolation. Whether it's your genetic family, your blood relatives, or whether it's a community that God builds around you, your circle, either way, we're meant to be in each other's lives. Over the course of our study in Genesis, we've seen it again and again that at the beginning there was this wholeness, right? That there was this oneness that we shared. A oneness between God and man and man and woman and God and man and woman and creation. There was this, there was this communion. And then when sin entered into the picture, there was brokenness and there was division. And we've seen that illustrated chapter after chapter after chapter. That in increasing measure, what we've got is not oneness between God and man and his fellow man and, and creation, but we've got increasing division and selfishness and pride and deceit and greed and uh, adultery and all kinds of things. But it is God's plan initially to have us in family. That's why his covenant with Abraham, which we've seen in just the last few weeks, his covenant with Abraham is a familial covenant, right? It's to give him descendants. It's to raise up generations of people, to raise up a people of God. When we look at the Ten Commandments that God gives to Moses, if we were to look at Exodus, we see that the first, the first commandment that has a promise attached to it is the commandment to honor your father and your mother. We could go to Proverbs chapter 1, a book of wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. God created family. God has a purpose for family. There is a revelation of God in the idea of family and community, and we feel it. And not just the people of God feel it, but everybody on the planet feels that desire for community. It was interesting, just at Thanksgiving, I had my older boys were both home. Uh, my, my oldest son now lives in Montana, and then my second oldest son lives in Arizona. He's going to school out there. And it was the first time that, like, they'd been away, and then they came home for a holiday. And so I had that feeling, like, people talk about that all the time. Like, the whole family's home, and we're, you know, the kids are back in their rooms. We're sitting around the Christmas table, and we're, or the, the Thanksgiving table, and we're all together. And that felt awesome. You guys, some of you know that feeling already. But, but then what didn't feel awesome is a couple days after Thanksgiving, 
room and I had to drive my boys to the airport, right? And I got to take them back to the airport and they're going back to the places where they live. And I felt the weight of that separation and the grief of it. And I just sort of felt myself saying, even as we're driving, like, this stinks, you know, like I'm driving my kids to the airport. And I remember over the last 20, 25 years, I remember lots of times when I drove away from my mom's house and she sobbed on the, on the sidewalk as we left. And in my head, I always just kind of thought like, she's trying to guilt trip me about something. Like, I don't know what these tears are all about. She's trying to make me feel bad for some reason. Maybe I didn't stay a couple extra days. But now, as a dad whose kids live in other places, my, my mom's with Jesus now. But I wish that I could call my mom up and go, I understand those tears. I understand the grief that comes when the kids go away. Why? Because we want to be together. And that isn't just a Christian thing. That's a human thing. Your coworkers and your friends at school and the people that, that you live with in your neighborhood, they get this idea of family because God's built it in. I mean, let's think about the Christmas story even of itself, right? Luke 2, most familiar uh, sort of narrative passage of, of the nativity. Look at this, Luke 2 verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about it, but Jesus didn't have to come to earth this way. He didn't have to come to earth this way. Jesus is infinite, which means he's always existed. He has no beginning and he has no end. In fact, the book of Colossians will tell us that Jesus was intrinsically tied to the creation of the world, right? So Jesus didn't start on the day he was born on earth. Well, the incarnation is a continuance of the existence of Christ. He could have come to earth as a fully formed person, right? As a fully formed man. He could have come glorious, so bright that people couldn't look at him without dying. He could have come in the full measure of his Godhood glory, right? But instead he comes like a baby. Instead, God gives him a mommy and a daddy, right? And cousins and brothers. God puts him in a family. Why why does the incarnation need to take place in a family? Well, there is a theme in scripture of God folding us into family. Part of the reason why Jesus comes and is a baby and has a mommy and a daddy is because that's part of God's design for us as human beings. And Jesus was meant to experience what what it looks like to be us and to live the life that we live. But more so, I think that in the coming of Christ, there's also an absolute telegraphing to the fact that One of the primary reasons Jesus came to the earth was to restore our family, to restore our sense of sonship and daughtership. There are all kinds of verses that emphasize this. If we look at John chapter 1, which is is the apostle John's sort of nativity story. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As John is telling the Christmas story in chapter one of his gospel, he is thinking not just of the birth of Jesus, but of our opportunity through belief in Jesus to be born into his family, to be born again into Jesus's family. Romans 8 verse 15 says something similar. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. By the way, the masculine there, that adoption as sons, this doesn't mean it's just for men. You could easily, and you should, hear in this an adoption for us as sons and daughters. That all of us are being welcomed back into the family of God despite the brokenness that sin has created. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you go all the way to the end of human history, you could look in the book of Revelation at Revelation 19.7. And what we see there is a wedding feast between the groom, the Lord Jesus, and his bride, which is us. It's family at the beginning and it's family at the end and it's family all the way through. A to Z, alpha to omega. God is writing a story on the hearts of his creation in the gift, the common grace of family. And if we can lower our dukes and we can put down our fears and we can put down our defensiveness, we have an opportunity in the life of every person we meet because everybody loves community. That's God's gift to them. Everybody loves family. We have an open door to have a conversation about the goodness of God. Anywhere we go. I mean, I I think some of you maybe think that my language around here about Fullerton Free is just, I don't know, like cutesy. Like I get up on a Sunday almost every week and I go like, hey, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here, but we want you to be family. And I think some people maybe think that's just like, I don't know, like a colloquialism or some like cutesy little thing I say with a wink. It's not. The, the idea of us at Fullerton Free being a family is not like just a cute little thing we concocted. That's a theological truth. We are the sons and daughters of God. We are the family of God. We are called to gather as a family, right? And so when we talk in that kind of, I mean, the whole reason we're even doing the, uh, we're doing the Sunday fun day things, this Sunday and the next two Sundays. What is that? It's about being at a family table. It's about not being disconnected, about not being disjointed, making sure that we're looking into each other's eyes and we're being family. Why? Because that feels good? No, the, the feeling good of it is like frosting on the cake. There is a theological truth that is God is revealed in our kinship and our desire for kinship and community. So here's what I want to point us to this morning in the, time, in the time we have left. Just a couple of minutes, a couple of points of application. I don't want us as a church family in the Christmas season to get so worried about protecting Jesus in Christmas that we miss the fact that it's impossible to take him out of it. That it's impossible to take him out of it because he has hardwired everybody on earth to reveal truths about who he is just in the things they already like about Christmas, the things they already like about the holidays. And family is the first one. We're going to do, we're going to do three weeks in this series. We're going to talk about family. Next week, we're going to talk about giving. And the week after that, we're going to talk about remembrance or nostalgia as gifts of God's common grace. And there are three goals in this sort of a study. The, the first one is that you would see God, that you would see God with greater clarity, that you would see that God is good, that God loves 
not just church people, not just believers, not just good guys, that God loves everybody. And that is proved both in the distribution of sunshine and rain and harvest seasons, but it's also proved by the fact that he created us to know and be known by other people, right? That he created us for family and community. I want us to see our view of God expand as we lift up our eyes and see his common grace. But once we see it, it isn't just an exercise in sort of understanding. We don't just want to look to go, oh, now I know that God is good even to the wicked and God is good even to the evil and God is good even to people who don't give a lick about him. That is true, but it isn't just about expanding your view. It's also about transforming your reflection of him. Does that make sense? Once I understand something about God, if I'm called to be an ambassador and if this is truly an embassy of the kingdom of God at Bastin Cherry and Brea, then what that does is it transforms the way I live. Because if God is good to those who don't deserve it, and if God is good to those who don't appreciate it, and if God is good to those who dismiss him outright, then I also, as his ambassador, must be good to those selfsame people. Does that make sense? Because I'm called to reveal him. I'm called to live a life that reveals Christ. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Be good to those who hate you, and do good to people who are unkind to you. Why? Because when you do it, you're showing God off. That's what God's like. That's my paraphrase, right? So, so we see God's common grace in the holidays. We see it both for our good, our understanding of who God is. We see it for our reflection or our revelation of him. And then lastly, we recognize that that distribution of goodness is an open door that God has created in the life of everybody we know. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter where you go to school. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you're from. It doesn't matter what your friends are like or what their journey of faith is like, or maybe they've got no faith. Every person on the planet likes to know other people and likes to be known. We weren't built to live in isolation. And there is an open door to go, hey, do you love family in the hall? I, love fa- I can't wait till my kids come back from Montana and Arizona. And any person I talk to, whether it's five minutes at the Circle K or sitting to get my tires changed or whatever, doesn't matter who I talk to in this season, I can use our common love of family that is a gift of God to point to him and say, you know that thing we all love about family? We didn't think that up. That's not just a thing we all put a hand in and agreed upon. That is wired into us by God because he is good and he sees us and he loves us. And he actually wants us to hunger to be a part of his family. And there's a way that happens. It's through Christ. You see that open door? This Christmas series will be about lifting up our eyes and putting down our dukes. And seeing how God is working through the holidays. I know holidays is even kind of a weird word for people, but holidays just means holy days. We, as the ambassadors of Jesus, have the opportunity to show our friends and neighbors, the people who live in our cities, what it is exactly that's so holy about these days as we reveal the goodness of God in our celebrations. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your common grace. I thank you for your kindness and generosity that leads us to repentance and to a deeper knowledge of you and to a clearer revelation of you. I thank you for my brother John and his willingness to come and share his talents and gifts, his passion, and for his reminder this morning that that you are the most important thing about Christmas, that Emmanuel, God with us, a demonstration of Jesus himself coming to open the way for us to be daughters and sons of God, to draw us into family, is the thing we're celebrating. I pray that we would all have the same passion and intentionality, that maybe you would show us how in our own life there may be books that we should illustrate or things we should prepare for our friends and nephews and neighbors, but that, God, you would use us as a church family to be a revelation of you during this holiday season. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.